and welcome to the Flip Flops podcast. I have such an incredibly special guest for you today. Her name is Tao Tai. She is a beautiful writer that I discovered through one of my favorite fashion blogs called Cupcakes and Cashmere. She also writes for The Every Mom, and she's currently working on the Cubby newsletter put together by Apartment Therapy and Kitchen. So have a listen. We have such a great conversation, and then she actually reads some of her writing, which is just so amazing. (laughs) I do get emotional, so please be warned. But I have to say, she is just one of those writers that absolutely cracks you open. Enjoy. Hi, Angelique. How are you? Good. How are you? Great to talk with you. Thank you so much for making the time. Are you crazy? Thank you so much. Oh, my God. When oh. you responded on on April 1st, I was like, she's playing an April Fool's Day joke on me. This oh can't be gosh. real. Oh, my gosh. You're too sweet. Thank you. <laughs> so thank you so much. So do you have your coffee ready to slurp? I sure do. And I have it in a, a Shroot Farms mug. I love a good novelty mug. And oh, me too. My, oh, no. my husband can't take it. I had too many mugs. So many mugs collected in my house. Everywhere we go, I get a mug to keep the memory. And uh, so I totally get it. So let's do it. Let's slurp away. Love it. <laughs> it's such an honor for me to have you on this podcast. Your writing, it's just so moving. I tried to read parts of it to my husband and I would just start crying. Oh, that's so kind. And yeah, you're just an absolutely beautiful, incredible writer. And so I just want to say thank you for putting out what you put out there and sharing everything. And you're such an inspiration, I'm sure, to many people. So thank you. Thank you for reading. That means so much. You know, I still find it really odd that anybody reads my work. I know that sounds like, you know, purposely self-deprecating, but it still feels like such an honor whenever anyone says they read something. So that that means everything to me. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. You said on the site of Cupcakes and Cashmere that you love talking about first memories. So I thought we would start there. What's your first memory? (laughs) I love this question. Well, the funny thing about memory, I think, and you probably have experienced this as a writer yourself, is that it feels like a very slippery thing, you know, like sometimes I, I think, was that my first memory? Or maybe that was, but I think the one that I remember the most is I remember when I, I must've been three or four, I was in my town in Vietnam. And I remember riding with my grandfather to work. I was raised by my grandparents and my grandfather would put me on the front of his bike. Everyone back then, everybody got around on bike. And I just remember the feeling of going through the town, waving to our friends and feeling so safe and yet so free. And I think that's something that's really stuck with me. It's the gift that our loved ones give to us, that feeling of being both extremely held, but also extremely free. You know, it it is such a gift. And I, I love thinking about that memory. Do you remember what the vegetation was like in the town that you were living or what it looked like? Can you describe it for us? 
You know, I can, um, but it's a little cloudy because I have been back since. So there's a little bit of a lighting that happens with that, you know, four-year-old memory of mine, plus what I experienced as a 20-something. But it, it is a, a relatively dry, dusty place. But my grandfather's garden has always been extremely vibrant. He would grow things like grapes and we'd grow our herbs and plants to have for dinner, you know, different kinds of spinach and green and all of that. So it, it was a mix. Um, it's not too far from the ocean too. So, you know, there, there is absolutely that sense of being close to water. Yeah, it, it is a, a really beautiful place. The architecture is very specific. It's a lot of really thin, tall buildings and the buildings are painted in these washed out pastel colors and the iron gates are painted green and it, it's sort of a vestige of French colonialism plus the very specific Vietnamese aesthetic too. Wow, it sounds dreamlike. Yeah, yes. I think I really battle with that in my writing to capture that dreamlike state, but also have it feel like something solid, something that a reader can really grasp onto and be a part of, because I never want anything to feel like it's too saccharine, I guess. Mm. What was the name of the town that you're from? Yeah, it's called Cha Dok, and it's a province in South Vietnam. It's a few hours from Saigon. Wow. And how old were you when you left Vietnam to move to the U.S.? I was five. So I have, as I said, these little snippets of memory, these these tendrils that, that kind of tie me to the place. But I always wish I had been there longer. I think, obviously, I would have remembered so much more and I would have felt more rooted. Mm. What did it feel like to go from Vietnam to the U.S.? Do you remember? I, I do. I remember the feeling of cold because I hadn't experienced <laughs> right it was October when we went to the states so and it was in Florida so you know compared to a place like Ohio or Canada it, it's not terribly cold but it, it felt like it to me coming from a very tropical area um, but more so than that I, I had never experienced air conditioning before so <laughs> I remember being really confused um, by you know the sounds of air conditioning going through the grates and and this feeling that there somebody was pushing air into the home. I always felt sort of like underdressed. I wanted to be in coats all the time. So that kind of temperature shift was something I remember very viscerally. And when I moved to Florida um, from the airport, we drove from the Tampa airport back to the city where I grew up, which is called Brainton outside of Sarasota on the Gulf Coast. And we went past the Skyway Bridge, which is this really big and beautiful bridge full of these geometric sort of like yellow bars connected into triangles. And it felt very much like a, a literal gateway into a new world. I, I couldn't have like written a better metaphor than that mm. um, but the ocean was still there and that that's kind of you know the theme of my life like being near the water and feeling very connected to that so it was very different but there were things that made it very familiar as well and obviously being around my family and making that trip with my grandparents and my uncle and my mom it, it was a a clan movement right when did you know you're a writer oh wow you know that's a funny question I I, I think in some ways I'm still sort of not knowing I, I still am not completely 
of the knowledge that I'm a writer. I think I've written from a young age because as so many readers do, you know, you go from, from reading and loving words to kind of creating your own stories and seeing where it goes from there. And I remember being, I don't know, I, I must've been, you know, eight or nine and really wanting to write my own book. And I wrote this ghost story about a dog who kind of wanders the premises of a a house. And this little girl is trying to figure out who the dog is and and what his story is. And it, it was such an odd little story that is not representative of all of what I do now. But I remember like binding it together with staples and feeling as if I've created something. And so I think um, the impulse of wanting to write has been with me for a while. Um, but owning the identity of writer, a writer, that's something entirely different. Do you want to write a book? I know you've spoken about it openly, but I'm wondering if you've started or if you have an idea, if that's something that you think will happen. I certainly hope it does because I definitely think you're an epic writer and I don't use that lightly. I genuinely believe so. That's really kind. You know, I was in an MFA program in at Ohio State. So at the end, you create this thesis and the idea is that it is a book length work that is ready for publishing. And so I did write it and then I just, it sat dormant for a while and now I'm finding myself going back to that manuscript and writing it in a different way with a different perspective, you know, 10 years later. And I find the thing that drove me to write that piece before is something very different now. My curiosity has shifted. My sense of self has shifted. And I think I'm more courageous in what I want to say. So yeah, that is to say, yes, I am writing a book. It's slow going and it's a reimagining of of the structure that's come before. So in a way, it's sort of like rewriting a book. But yeah, I, I hope to one day finish it and, and do something with it. <laughs> I hope Thank it comes you. out sooner rather than later. Oh, that's okay. Thank you. I, I hope it comes out at some point too. <laughs> I'm so curious, you know, when you read a piece that you've written, you really take the reader on a thought journey from one moment to the next and with profound emotional shifts with each paragraph, with each line, with the change of a word, with the juxtaposition of symbolism that you use And I'm wondering, is there always a part of your brain that is observing your life to be able to write that way? Or do you just have an Mm. extremely keen memory? Oh, first of all, thank you for those really kind words. You know, I actually have a a pretty odd memory. It's very selective. I won't be able to tell you, for example, what I was reading last week, and I'm very bad with names, but certain things really burrow themselves into my memory. Like I remember the way things feel very vividly, like my senses, the way things taste, the way something sounded, the way something felt on my fingertips. Like that's the kind of thing that my brain seems to happily make space for when it forgets other things like an equation that I learned in pre-algebra or whatever. So yeah, I think I think my memory is a funny thing. It seems to kind of snag at certain things and that informs a lot of my writing. Being an only child too, I think has been a big part of that. I was raised around a lot of adults and so you know, we, we were raised in sort of a culture of kids who were silent and, and not heard. And so, you know, the gift of 
if you can call it that, the gift of being so silent is that you watch a lot and you make note of things and you make your own stories as you're watching in that silence in the corners. So yeah, I, I think all of that has kind of been part survival tactic, you know, just being new to a land and not quite knowing how things operate, that, that sense of always like measuring a situation that stayed with me and also my nutty sense of memory too. <laughs> Have you ever been stuck creatively? And how did you get yourself out of it and back into the creative flow? Oh, that's a great question. Yes, I am stuck quite a bit. I actually go really long periods without writing sometimes. In my last career, I was a design director and I would go years without really writing anything. And I don't see myself doing that again. I don't see myself taking that long of a hiatus from writing, but I certainly have moments where I'm just kind of living life and not really processing it in the same way. For me, what is really opening is if I am able to find like my way into a piece. So for example, I was writing a piece recently about friendship and there's so much to say about the topic. There's so much to kind of get on paper and it's such a broad topic. And so the thing that helped me through that was to think of a specific piece of dialogue that I had with a friend over the phone. And that kind of felt like an opening into something bigger. So for me, getting unstuck is very much a matter of finding that small pebble, that stone that feels um, like it could lead down a path of something bigger. How does it work at Cupcakes and Cashmere? Do you pitch your ideas or do they ask you to write on a certain topic? Yeah, I've, I've been so lucky to work with them. I, I love my editor, Leslie. She's wonderful. We have a very similar sensibility when it comes to things that make us curious and things we love reading. So no, everything is completely pitched by me. And Leslie is usually game for, for everything. So it's really a pleasure to be able to, to work with someone I trust so much. Once in a while, if, if there's something you know, that feels pressing for them, that Leslie may invite me to speak on something or ask me if I have any thoughts, but it, it's very much um, a dialogue between us both. And a lot of times what happens is I'll pitch something that I think is really makes sense. And Leslie will kind of push it further and say, I love where this is going. Have you thought about this aspect? Or what would you think about incorporating this? And it always makes the piece stronger, which is the gift of a great editor, really. Wow. You've lived through a lot of changes. I'm just wondering, most specifically, you recently left a position, which you said was kind of a dream position, but you felt an right. inner pivot to take care of your daughter full time. I'm just wondering how that affected you creatively and how did you navigate the emotional changes that come with that and kind of stay creative and kind to yourself? I know from the reason I ask that is because I tend to lack patience for myself. So I'm wondering right. <laughs> how you right. how you navigate all of that. Yeah. What is your Enneagram, Angelique? I'm, I'm curious. I'm oh, not okay. sure. I know that I'm very driven by instinct. Okay. 
Okay. Yeah. And so intuition. A, I'm high intuition. Right. Right. I, I can see that for sure. I, I asked because I've just taken sort of a deep dive into the Enneagram test. And I found that my Enneagram is a, a two, which is typically seen as the helper, but can really morph into the martyr. And what drives me is how other people see me. It's sort of this uh, people-pleasing instinct that I've kind of cultivated throughout childhood and what have you, just wanting to to make everything okay and for others and wanting to be seen a certain way. So when I was making that career shift, I really had to work with that in myself and to, to face it head on because the things that had given me validation and self-worth were so much the things that I had grown up believing were important. You know, having a career and a certain title and a certain income and being impressive, if you will, like that was really important to me growing up. And it was important to me partly because, you know, my, my parents were immigrants. And so the goals they gave for me, the the goals I inherited from them were ones of the the American dream, be believing that security lies in achieving a certain level of capitalism. And that's not wrong entirely. I think we do live in a capitalist society and security is important for a variety of reasons. So I, I was working with so many of these inner questions that I had for myself. But I really felt like to be the truest version of myself, I need to be creating more and I need to be owning my work in a way that gives me strength and power. And I really wanted to model that for my daughter as well. And I recognize, and I I spoke about it in the essay too, but I I recognize this, this is a choice that not many people have. So I am incredibly privileged, incredibly fortunate as well. So the fact that I was even able to do that uh, was was definitely a gift that I was able to give myself and my my husband and my daughter were supportive of it as well. But it wasn't easy. I, I definitely spent a lot of time asking myself if I made a mistake, asking myself if I was trading something quixotic and, you know, like for something real. So much of my life is lived in my head, you know, as you know, I suspect is the case for you as well as a fellow writer. <laughs> so it, it it's hard to find your way into an instinct that feels true when you're also battling with all of these other messages that ha- you've adopted as your own. Does that make sense? It does, of course. And has it reached a point where it, you know that it was the right choice for you? Oh, uh, yes, for okay, sure. Good. For sure. I love, I actually work part-time now, but it's a yes, really, we will really talk good about balance. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's a great balance. I love spending time with my daughter and being able to ease her into the next period of her life, which is going to preschool and kindergarten very soon. And I feel incredibly lucky. How has being a mother affected your writing? Has it been a source of inspiration for you? I would think so. I'm curious how you would articulate that relationship between your writing and and motherhood. Yeah, thank you for that question. I would say that I started writing again when I became a mother. I took a long break. I, I think I may have written an essay or two at the request of a friend who was an editor, but I wasn't really writing for myself until my daughter came along. And it was a new level of experience for sure. I was experiencing things I'd never had before. So I wanted to write about that. 
But I think for the first time in my life, I felt a desire to be a part of a community, to, to view writing, not just as something I did for myself, but something I did for others, to make other mothers feel less alone, to provide the space to say the unsayable, to understand what our collective experience is through the articulation of my specific experience, if that makes any sense. Well, I, I would definitely say that it makes sense and it's what you've achieved. Certainly in oh. my reading of your pieces, I felt less alone and you articulated feelings oh. that are so specific and that's what drew me to you. So you definitely achieved that. So thank you. Angelique, that, that's so that's so kind of you to say thank you. And, you know, I think it, it's something we're all working towards, all us mothers here are, are trying to make this sense of community and empowerment because historically the world has not been kind to mothers, working mothers, stay-at-home mothers. They, it just hasn't been a kind world for us. And I remember I suffered from pretty severe postpartum depression. And in that period, I was reading a lot of mothers. I was reading Catherine Newman. And what I found in her was just this really complicated and lovely mix of joy and despair. And it felt so true to my experience. And it helped me through those first few weeks that were so devastating. And so the thought that I could make one mother feel less alone, it felt to me like a, a new kind of calling that I, I had frankly never seen before in my pursuit of writing. That's so beautiful. So not only did I feel that, but I just want to add to the conversation that I also find that as you raise a child and you tell her to be brave and strong and love herself and, and all of the empowerment messages that we want to pass on, do you find that you also end up passing them on to yourself and having a realization of areas in your own life where maybe you're not doing that for yourself? Oh, I love that question. Yeah, you and you, of course, as a mother of a, a young child who your daughter's four, right? She's turning four on Sunday. Oh, that's so <laughs> exciting. That's my favorite age so far. You're gonna love it. Yeah, so four was interesting for, for my daughter as well, because she was really, really starting to have a sense of individuality and preference and, and selfhood. And seeing that was such a gorgeous thing. I couldn't get enough of watching her explore her her boldness. And it taught me something, as, as you're saying it, it taught me something about self-love too. I, I'm actually kind of going through this really informal process of um, exploring what self-love can mean. And I'm doing this ridiculous thing where I will talk to myself internally because, you know, I'm not ready for the, uh, the looks from other people, but I, I'll talk to myself internally and I'll check in and I'll say, Hey, how are you doing? Like, what are you feeling right now? You know, how, I, I think you're going to do great at this thing, or don't worry, this is going to be okay. And it's, it's a kind of self-parenting that I've learned through giving my daughter the things that I see that she needs. It makes me realize, oh, right, I can also give them to myself. And it's been a really lovely thing. And it, it's something I've never, frankly, done before. I, I think my messages to myself throughout the years have been ones that were toxic, to be honest. And so learning to speak to oneself with love, it, it feels incredibly world opening um, and affirming to be able to do that. Have you experienced that at all yourself? I experience it 
in waves. And I had a day yesterday where I had just a whirlwind of emotion running through me. And I did that because I had this feeling that there was no one that I could reach out to, to articulate how I was feeling Mm, in a new way. And, you know, we're all feeling it. So it's very hard to find voices right now to help us through these. You just kind of have to breathe or meditate or do all of these things. Right. Um, And finally, I ended up saying to myself, you know, these feelings are okay and it's normal. Mm. And Mm. what could you do right now to make yourself feel better? And Mm. I ended up just, you know, going biking with my daughter and just being outside in the sunshine and living in the moment and just kind of acknowledging the feelings, saying they're okay, feeling a little bit overwhelmed, but not being afraid by them. I ended up saying, you have it within you to take care of yourself. You don't Mm. need anyone to take care of yourself. You can remind yourself to be your own mother. And I did that yesterday and it passed. And so, yes, Mm. I have moments where I have to remind myself that we have that within us. It's interesting because you use the word self-love, which is almost overused right now. Mm -hmm. But I think there it's absolutely necessary and absolutely true. And I think self-parenting is a really important way to embark on self-love and talk to yourself like someone you love. So yeah, absolutely. I try to do that. I try to remind myself to do that. So yeah, (laughs) the answer is yes. I I love what you're saying. And I think too, like what you say about self-love is very interesting because I find that I I have sort of a an, an allergy to the phrase um, self-care, and for various reasons. I mean, it, it contains a lot of privilege because self-care usually manifests in buying something for yourself. But I have found that the things that have given me the most solace are the ones that one aren't products and to really come from within. And sometimes I think our culture has been become so seeped in the, the language of, you know, self-help that a lot of good and true things get buried within a lot of that commercialism and kind of the the capitalism of the self-care industry. So rediscovering that internal voice as you talk about and knowing that you are, you can be self-sufficient in this way. It's very empowering right now. Yeah. I mean, as I hear you talk about it, it's almost like religion in a sense that Mm. we throw religion away for various reasons. We all have our own reasons. And yet one does have to find their own spirituality or their own sense of what that power is. And I think it's the same thing with self-care and self-love because you know, it is overused, and it has been commercialized. But at the same time, of course, we have to love ourselves, we just need to know how to take care of ourselves emotionally. And as you said, it's not about going to the store and buying something, but it's really about, you know, looking deep within and being kind to yourself. I heard an interview with Elizabeth Gilbert, who said she writes letters from love to herself in her journal. And I thought that was really beautiful. So I've tried that. And so yeah, I think anything we can do to be kind to ourselves right now is important and for everybody. Yeah. And I think there's such a buried sense of shame as well. And, and sort of focusing on the self, it feels like, I think society 
sometimes makes it feel like really indulgent to take this time to look inward and to devote yourself to something that isn't career or children or what have you, or, or some kind of sacrifice of the self. And I remember Glennon Doyle spoke in an interview once, and she said something that was so eye-opening to me. She said, there's no such thing as one-way liberation, meaning that when you free the self, you are also freeing those around you, both by modeling what freedom looks like, but also by telling others that you are valuing yourself enough so that they can also feel the permission to value themselves too. And I think about that a lot with my daughter and I'm sure you probably do too. Yeah. Wow. I love that. Um, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. I want to talk about your education. (laughs) Of course. Your vocabulary is impressive. Your, obviously your writing skills are amazing. But I'm wondering if you can kind of synthesize what it is that you learned, because I believe you have two degrees, correct? I do. Yeah, I have. um, So I have an MA, a master's degree in the humanities, and then with a concentration in creative writing, and then an MFA specifically in creative writing. Right. Okay. So I studied marketing and communication. Okay. So I was always near to it, never specifically went into creative writing. Um, It was something that happened later in my life where I kind of tuned back into it. I'm just wondering if you're able to articulate what you got out of having an MFA. And I realize that's a very broad question, but is there perhaps a teacher that taught you something that really stuck with you or a piece of writing where you had, where a light bulb went off? Would you be able to articulate what you got out of your education? Yeah, so I had some great teachers. I think the first creative writing teacher who really moved me was a teacher I had at the University of Chicago named Dan Rayburn. He's still there. He's still teaching for anyone interested in learning from him. I think he kind of taught me the shape of story. I'm going to be a lifelong learner and and what makes a story. And it's different in every case, of course, in every context. The, The MFA allowed me and the master's degree, it allowed me to read widely and to have the space and time to write. And I think when I went into writing, I kind of had this idea that you just model what other writers do. This person's brilliant and a success, so I'll just try to do that thing. But really what those programs really honed, and more the MFA, I would say, what they really honed in me was a sense of finding my own voice, which really ties into what we were just discussing before about, you know, that voice to the self. So learning what it is that makes my writing feel like mine. And part of it is just getting down to what is at the core of the self, which isn't always very pretty and in fact can be kind of ugly, but looking that core head on and saying, I am not afraid of this. I am going to own this. This is going to be a part of my narrative. That was something that took me a really long time to learn as a writer and something I'm still learning now. It's something that, you know, you you find that that voice, whatever it is, and then you have to shape it in a way that feels well-crafted and relevant to your readers and artful, I guess. We're going to be lifelong students in that, but I think my degree really gave me the space to explore that sense of voice for myself. Mm, I really would love for you to read some of your writing. And so I had sent you some of my favorites. So maybe we can kind of skip around and, and pick our favorites. I would love to start with 
your piece where you wrote about keeping your name. So can you, first of all, say your name? And then, sorry, sorry, go for it. <laughs> no, um, Tao Feng Tai. Okay, thank you. And then can you read to everybody why you decided not to change your names? I, I can't read them because I'll start crying. So, oh, <laughs> you're too, you're too kind to me. My name is formed from a collection of wishes that was never mine. Tao for filial respect, the daughter who'd never think of moving hundreds of miles away. The one who never forgot birthdays or missed a Sunday lunch. Feng for beauty, the smooth trust woman who swam in grace and never dared to walk the neighborhood in house slippers. Tai, a means nothing really name inherited from my father, the shadow man, the abandoner of families. My last name has a particular bite, tragic irony compounded in one guttural little syllable. I've always kept morbid artifacts around like splinters that jag just beneath the skin's surface. <laughs> sorry <laughs> no please please don't apologize I wish I could I wish I could give you a hug or, or whatever I feel whatever. it, I feel it. Oh. okay good. good um then in that same piece you speak about the rainbow girls with names like mm. Tiffany and whatnot <laughs> right and there's one sentence there that I just thought was so beautiful so can you read that one of course her life sparkled like sunlight off a pool oh okay so can you read this next paragraph, which is on the thought of changing your name? I'd love to. I imagined my grandparents using my new name, struggling with the consonants. Ours had always been difficult for them. Imagining them unable to pronounce my new name felt like a sponge in my chest. It soaked up my eagerness. Oh, my goodness. I'm just a wreck over here. Oh, <laughs> Continue. So the next one is on keeping your name a second time. When you were moving to the U.S., your family suggested that perhaps you take, do you want to articulate what it was? Yeah. When, when I became a citizen, you, you have the option to, to formally change your name if you wish. And a lot of the people in my circle, young Vietnamese men and women, they were changing their names as well. And I really debated on it. And I, I, I wanted to, but in the end, I didn't. And then when I married my husband, it wasn't so much a question that time. I don't think either of us thought that I was going to. But in both instances, I, I decided to keep my name. And it, it's not really a name that I loved growing up at all. In fact, quite the opposite. But I was, I couldn't bear to let it go. On keeping your name, can you read this? I'd love to. So my name was a gift as much as it was a wish. In all my yearning, my craving for another identity, I eventually became rooted in who I was. I was warmed by the glow of love that haloed me as I took my first breaths and beyond. Now I feel the reverberations of my family's love every time I write my name. And what is in a name? Loving my name and its history had been hard won, and I felt inextricably tied to it now. I couldn't let it go. And perhaps I also didn't want to sever my last link to my father, the shadow man whose absence helped illuminate the ones who never left. If we hold it long enough, a name can be a pathway back to what we have lost. A name is nothing so momentous in the grand scheme of things. And yet, a name is everything. It's the measure of who we've been and who we are yet to be. Okay. 
<laughs> Let's switch gears. Oh my goodness. Yeah, thank thank you so much of for, for reading. Okay. Of course. So I love that you did a piece on rituals during quarantine, especially mm-hmm. around your coffee. We're big lovers of coffee in my house. <laughs> and we have What's the mug. Your... Oh, we yeah. do we do a press coffee. And so we get oh. some local coffees and kind of throw a bunch together and make our own blends. And oh wow. Yeah. So the ritual of coffee, the smell, memories it evokes is something dear to my heart. And so you wrote a piece reconnecting with home, specifically to your grandparents. I was hoping you could read a few paragraphs about that from that piece. So the first one is describing coffee of your childhood. Yeah. And, you know, I just, I want to say too, I I love the rituals that you're, you're talking about because I feel like coffee too is one of those things that you consume that, that kind of feels like a gateway into adulthood, right? You're not, you're not drinking coffee as a child, you, you know, when you're 21 and, and having a drink for the first time, which I know that's not the case. Nobody has their first drink at 21 anymore. But but yeah, coffee feels like that too. So I I'm looking so true. Yeah, so true. It's gonna be fun to see our daughters have their first sip of coffee. Oh my goodness, she already smells it, and she loves the smell. And she does. Oh yeah, we got her a T-shirt that says "Mini Barista," and she she helps my husband make his coffee every morning, and it's absolutely it's such a it's a beautiful beautiful thing to watch every morning. Isn't it great? What is what is her job? Does she press the coffee? So my husband has a very fancy machine, and Mm -hmm. so she pours it out and she has to get the crema just right. And then this morning she did an incredible job. (laughs) She was Mm. so excited saying, look, mama, look, mama. I did a good job doing the crema. (laughs) That is so cute. Can I say that as a former barista, I love that your three-year-old daughter said the word crema. That's so cute. Oh my God. It's, it's too good. It's like a little thing that, that they do together and it's, yeah it's beautiful every time. I mean, so many beautiful moments. Um, So go ahead and read. Cafe Soda smells like it tastes. It tastes like your first hesitant sip just before hopping into your stepfather's truck for school. Like Don and Saigon bent over a balcony watching the elderly speed walkers loop around the park. Like your favorite Vietnam restaurant in uptown Chicago where they laughed at your accent. Like the faraway darkness of colonialism, like your husband talking with your grandfather in the childhood kitchen. Cafe Soda smells like the bittersweet curl of nostalgia. It tastes of memories that drip as slowly as coffee from a fiend filter. I, Angelique, I have to tell you, it's so, whenever I'm reading these out loud to you, and every time I switch from a Vietnamese word to an American word, an English word, I, there's this pause and I'm noticing it now because it's a very like deliberate transfer of my brain and my tongue. Like it feels like a switch. And so it's a little awkward doing it. And it reminds me of my mom who who kind of has this like language like a lot of immigrant parents that's just like a mix of like the native tongue and English and it's so seamless but for me it's such a a stark translation that's so interesting do you speak another language I speak some French yeah and I have to say I love speaking to my daughter in French oh yeah I really I feel like like my persona changes yeah yeah. And I love that. 
And I love that she'll have that in her life and she'll have it. I really protested against speaking French. Just so you know, my dad is from England and I was born okay. in England and my mother is French Canadian. And, and I really, really fought speaking French as a child. And now I absolutely love it. And I see mm. my daughter is eager to learn and says, speak French, mummy, speak French. And I'm so happy. I'm so happy that she'll have that at her fingertips. So I would like for you to read your next paragraph on you making your own coffee where you where you kind of say, I know I can, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Of course, I knew I was capable of brewing a cup of cafe soda. I'd seen it done hundreds of times, but I didn't believe cafe soda could taste the same without the hum of bickering in the background and the weight of my grandfather's palm on my head. There is something about the emotion that filters into each cup from the maker, a love freely given and received, the immutable ingredient that seeps and nourishes. So beautiful. I'd like to switch gears, if you don't mind. You wrote one piece about how microaggressions made your dream of living in suburbia impossible. And thank you so much for sharing everything that you wrote in that piece. It's extremely moving. Would you be able to read that beautiful paragraph? Of course, of course. The next Christmas, my mom flew up from Florida to visit. She and my daughter got along beautifully. Their souls seemed to sparkle a little more insistently around each other. Like any grandmother, my mom wanted to shower her first and only grandchild with gifts. I took her to Target to load up her cart, which she did with no restraint at all. I smiled at the sight of her arms full of fluffy toddler dresses and overstuffed animals. Her hands were coated in glitter. It was such a sweet holiday moment that I found myself looking around to share a convivial glance with someone else. I met the eyes of a man in a blue cap glaring at us, his fingers drumming violently against the handle of his cart. He didn't say a word, only stood there, fixing us with that piercing and unflinching look. The shock of it made me catch my breath. He hates us, I thought, irrationally yet with certainty. I remember looking around, thinking I'd knocked over his child or something equally unforgivable, but we were just existing. Wow. I'm so sorry you had that moment. Thank you for reading it and for, for, for hearing it. I think, you know, reading it and and, and really hearing it are, are two different things. And so I appreciate that very much. And then I was wondering if you could read the last paragraph of that piece where you've decided to leave this town sure. and someone is saying basically, all you'll remember of your experience here is the quaint little town where your baby said her first words and took her first steps. And you go on to say, I understand the desire, the need for tidy endings and expansive forgiveness. I understand, yet I can't quite capitulate to it. I think back to my first weekend in that town when my husband and I painted the mustard yellow walls of our new house a pale gray. When we were done with the first coat, we could see the undertones of decades old paint underneath. So we covered it up again and again until layers of new paint sat thick and opaque against the foundation of the house. Somehow our histories begin to look like that, a covering and whitewashing until we can't remember the original colors at all. As the town faded behind me, I blurred in my periphery the dream we were lucky to escape. <sighs> it's gutting. I, I have to tell you, after this essay, um, the comments on it were were very mixed. You know, some some comments were absolutely lovely and resonant, and then some really challenged this idea of of the microaggression and suburban life. And for a time, I let myself get into that space where as a writer, I was saying, 
is this fair? Did I paint an unclear picture? Am I overly whatever, biased or whatever? And then afterwards, I got no less than three or four messages, private messages, and also comments on the thread, where people identified that very specific town. They said, hey, did you live in XX town? Really? Yes. And they said, because I went through that too. And that was the moment where I realized, I was not imagining this. This is a this happened to other people of color in this town. And I never once in the article did I mention the town. I I there were a few identifying details, but I don't think anything so glaring, but and it's a small town. And so the fact that multiple people reached out and said, "Hey, I went through this too." That was the moment where I said, Oh God, this thing is real. You describe racism. Lest you think me naive, I'm no stranger to racism. I grew up in a diverse yet boldly bigoted part of coastal Florida where slurs flew as blithely as mosquitoes in a swamp. But what was happening in my new town was something completely different and harder to pinpoint. It was the exclusion that happened so passively and sneakily that you begin to question your own worldview. Microaggressions do their most potent work through gaslighting. They shake your sense of identity. They coat you in otherness while leaving the evil nameless. I did want to give you a chance to talk about Cubby. So do you want to walk us through kind of how that got started and what it is and then how people can sign up for the newsletter? Oh, I'd love that. Thank you. So I have been a follower of apartment therapy and the kitchen since my early days when I lived in tiny, tiny apartments in Chicago. So after I left my other job, I saw this wonderful job posting and it was a part-time commitment and it was for a weekly newsletter for families at home, which sounded so delightful and right up my alley. And so the newsletter comes out every Thursday and it has divided into sections, eat, play, live and it's full of all these great tangible resources for parents and it's really a delightful little piece to get in your inbox every week and um, my editor-in-chief describes it as a snack so something that is brief yet nutritious and satisfying so parents are so busy these days that I know I for one don't have time to read quite as much as I wish I could so the fact that there is this beautiful resource out there that's so lovely and you can find it at cubbyathome.com. You can sign up and you'll hear from us every Thursday. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank I did you. not intend on crying so much. I really oh. apologize. <laughs> Never apologize for crying. I, I'm thankful that you're reading and I'm thankful for the words and the opportunity to talk. It's been so lovely. Thank you so much for joining Tao. You were such a beautiful person to speak to and you're someone that I hope I stay in touch with. I'm really sorry that I missed your Shroot Farm mug reference. Obviously you're talking about Dwight from The Office and it took me listening to this three times before I clued in. So I just wanna say I love The Office too. Thank you so much for listening and I just want to throw out there, Tao, that I think you are as beautiful as sunlight sparkling off a pool. Have a great day, everyone.